Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is season three of Prevail. Welcome to the program. It's a little hard for me to bring the energy here, I have to say. I've been gone for three weeks. This is the first new show in three weeks. And in those three weeks, all hell has broken loose. Vladimir Putin, that little shit, has decided to invade Ukraine in that time. And the world is on fire. It's scary. And there's not a lot of joy here. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of apprehension. There's a lot of uncertainty. I find myself like reading feeds from... Russian military experts. It's not exactly what I expected it to do during my hiatus, but I wanted to come back and I wanted to come back strong and address the war in uh, as best a way as I could. So this is a double episode. It's physical graffiti. It's the White Album. It's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It's Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I've got two guests, two full-length interviews, all talking about Russia and Ukraine. First, my friend, Serena Zabriskie, we had her on in early February, and we were talking about Ukraine because at the time, Russian forces were mobilizing on the uh, border, and she was very pessimistic, uh, like really pessimistic. I thought I was going to have to cheer her up by reading passages from Ulysses, like that level of, of pessimistic, and unfortunately, uh, she was right. You know, Putin is a shit, and he did do what he said he was going to do, and uh uh, it hasn't gone, fortunately, according to the way that he planned. And, you know, the world is just waiting to see what's going to happen. So since the invasion, Zarina has been just completely plugged into the war and reporting on the war. And the way that she does that is she has contacts all throughout Ukraine and in Russia, um, people that she's friends with. Remember, she went to Ukraine in November and hung out there for she was there for a while visiting friends and stuff like that. And she's in contact with a lot of people there, a lot of writers, people in the, in the literary community. And she uh, monitors a lot of these telegram channels and stuff like that. 
She takes everything that she hears, she vets it, she translates it, she puts it on Twitter. It's really, really important to get a, a sort of real-time sense of what's going on on the ground. It's, it's hard work. Not many people can do it. She's been doing a great job. You should definitely follow her on Twitter if you don't already. Zarina Zabriskie. I will have her handle in the notes. So the first part of the show, we talked to Zarina. The second part of the show, I bring in my friend Moscow Never Sleeps. It's been a while since he's been on. Uh, he is, of course, a Prevail contributor on the Substack there. He's written a bunch of really interesting pieces, some about the Supreme Court and many about Putin and Russia. He worked there for 10 years during the Yeltsin administration in the early days of the Putin uh, reign. And uh, he's got a lot to share also. We talk to him about kind of the Russian side of things, because we've covered U the Ukrainian side of things on the show before. I wanted to figure out what's going on in Russia. What, what are the people on the ground thinking there? What's going to happen with Putin? Why are we in this mess to begin with? So he, he had some really good insights as well. This is a really, I think it's a really interesting episode um, of the moment. I'm proud to bring it to you. And I've got nothing to say here up front. Uh, I've been off for three weeks. I had a cold for nine days of the three weeks. So um, it was a pretty bad cold. My youngest had the cold also before I did it and insisted that he had COVID. He's like, it has to be COVID. Um, got COVID tested like five times. I got COVID tested. We all got COVID tested. Nobody has COVID. It's just a really bad cold. So I guess a bad cold is a return to normalcy. Maybe we should be happy about that. I don't know. Maybe you can hear it in my voice. I'm still a little bit congested. My apologies for that. Um, anyway, I'm going to be on the mend and monitoring what's going on. So we'll be right back with Serena Zabriskie. It can happen to anyone. We read something on Facebook, maybe see a random tweet, and it confirms something we want to be true, like Hillary Clinton has some incurable blood disorder, or there's a bio lab in Ukraine where Dr. Fauci does medical experiments, or Anthony Weiner's laptop contains anything but dick pics. I know it can happen because it happened to me. Hi, I'm Greg Abbott. Back in 2015, I sent the Texas National Guard to check out a military training exercise called Jade Helm because I thought President Obama was going to declare martial law and turn Walmart parking lots into FEMA concentration camps. Turns out that was Russian propaganda and I fell for it. I knew I had a problem, so I went to a meeting of UIA, Useful Idiots Anonymous, and it changed my life. How can you tell if you're a useful idiot? Well, maybe you're taking Putin's side on the invasion. Maybe you're riding a truck around the Beltway. Maybe you think the brilliant woman who appeared on your vlog for the last 18 months is an Israeli spy on a secret mission to silence you because an anti-Semitic right-wing troll said so. Maybe your name is Rafael Cruz. If you think you might be a useful idiot, call 1-800-GRUFOOL or check out our page on The Truth Social. Useful Idiots Anonymous. The first step in solving a problem is admitting you have one. I'm Greg Abbott, and I'm a useful idiot. And now, back to the show. Serena Zabriskie, welcome back to Prevail. Hi, Greg. It's really good to speak to you. Thank you for having me back. No, thanks for coming on. I, I, I'm sorry that you have to be called into duty here so soon after you were last on and, and uh, but you know, the, the, the world turned as the world turned the last time you were here, you know, we obviously talked about Ukraine, the invasion had not happened yet. You were very, very pessimistic so much so that I had to try to bring up Joyce at the end of the podcast to cheer you up. 
And, uh, you know, you were right. You know, you, you, you were right to be pe pessimistic. Putin did indeed invade and the world went to hell and, and is burning and is on fire. And the last month has been world changing really in every way. And you have, um, you know, really taken up and done everything that you can do um, on Twitter. What you're doing is you're basically monitoring what's happening in, in Ukraine in real time. You've got a bunch of different uh, sources on the ground. You're watching a bunch of telegram channels and getting news from a bunch of different sources. And then, uh, you know, uh, disseminating it on your Twitter feed. It's very, very valuable. I think it's really useful work. I know you you don't think it is, but I want to tell you that it is very, very valuable. I know people value it. People wanted you to come back on the show and, uh, you know, and, and tell us about wh what you think is happening. So thank you for, for the work you're doing and thanks for coming back on today. Well, thank you, Greg. Um, I, I mean, I know that this is an important work. My focus, I want to say a couple of words of what I'm doing. Um, I, I might be doing different things in the nearest future. I'm still figuring out what is the best course of auction, uh, action here. But uh, for now, I've been focusing on information from my sources. I have a lot of friends who are still in Ukraine. I have a lot of friends who managed to flee Ukraine. I know people that from the opposition who managed to flee Russia. And I still know some opposition who, who are stuck in Russia. So, but mainly I focus on Ukrainian sources and occasionally you will hear like a little bling when I speak. Uh, and these are my sources and I don't know how to mute it. I don't know, I, I don't want to cut off the channel. So I apologize for that. That's okay. I, I think it'll, it'll prove to everybody that you're just on it all the time. Cause I feel like you've been on this constantly. Yeah. Oh, let, let me let me tell you, because some people asking, how do I do it? Where do I get sources? And with the limited space of a Twitter, I don't always have the space to quote the source. I uh, look at, um, first of all, what people send to me personally. I know mm -hmm. these people, they're mostly from the writers community, writers and publishers and journalists community in Ukraine, because I recently went visiting there. Uh, I went for a little reading in Kiev and uh, um, I, I speak to these people. So um, they are quite reputable. They are publicly known. And I know that the information is reliable. Still, I verify what they send, trying to search in Ukrainian sources. And I have to say that my written, uh, writing and reading skills, as well as comprehension skills in Ukrainian, improved drastically in the last 20 years. <laughs> That's the way to learn the language. I still can't speak uh, other than some basic phrases, but I understand pretty much everything. So I turn to these uh, sources and I verify as much as I can. I also have several telegram channels from uh, local communities, and I don't want to disclose them because lately they've been dealing with a lot of Russian trolls and bots, and it's okay. an ongoing battle. So when somebody but he asks me on Twitter, even if uh, well-meaning, please give me the source or please can I look for my family there. If these people are Ukrainian, they can do the search in Ukrainian and find them. I am not giving out the information, uh, but th these are mainly the forums where people say where to meet, uh, you know, where, where to get food, stuff like that. They're not necessarily user-oriented, but that's where you can verify 
you know, things, important things that some of them I share and some I don't. And recently, the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine has been asking everybody not to share as much as they want to the dramatic footage of explosions or not to share the locations, the addresses, and not even say it was a school. Use phrases like residential areas somewhere in Kharkov region, because the Russians are using this information. So I now only disclose uh, the actual locations after the Ministry of Defense or local authorities do that. And so I ask everyone who follows or retweets other people or share, be mindful of that. That's very important the way we share the information now. It's a, that, that's a good point, because I feel like there's two different you know, types of warfare going on here. Um, you know, there's the obviously the hot warfare, which is horrible, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's also the information warfare, um, which I think the Ukrainians are winning in, you know, by leaps and bounds over whatever Putin and his guys are trying to do. Um, so what, what are your thoughts about, about the information space? I mean, would you agree that the, the Ukrainians are winning. I feel like Zelensky has completely transformed himself in, in a month into basically a folklore hero um, from a guy who a month ago probably wasn't going to win re-election. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's true. I mean, we, we have, again, like um, the same thing as in the case with Navalny. And I think we talked about that before mm-hmm. here on this podcast. This is this the archetypes we're dealing with, the archetypes from the folklore scenario where the uh, ultimate evil is fighting ultimate good and there is always a hero. So in this case, we have a good hero, uh, Navalny, who by the way, today was sentenced or the, the sentence is being now looked at for 13 more years in prison. Or we have Zelensky uh, and these characters while being actual people, like people who live next to us, made of the same flesh and blood, they take upon the qualities of folk epic saga, where one takes after another and fights the cache, the deathless, which is Putin, like this ultimate evil. And uh, I was thinking about that, uh, Greg, the danger here for those who are not directly involved, for either people who are not in the conflict zone or not people who have their closed ones and loved ones like myself there, for whom it's way too real, the whole uh, tragedy might take upon the elements of uh, some um, Netflix uh, serial, you know, series that you binge on, or, or almost like a video game in which you can actually participate, which makes it even more exciting, you know, because when people hear meaning well are helping, sending uh, uh, money or sharing the information, you become a participant in this ultimate battle of good and evil. And we all as a society are being sucked into this show, you know, like in a way it's some gladiator battle, which it is not because I actually know people who are dying right now in hospitals where there are no medicine. Uh, When you are on the ground, when you were on that ground just a month before, you feel that way more real, even if it can feel surreal like a dream, it's still the reality is the injury that you had, you know, if God forbid anybody suffered 
sickness in the hospital that's the quality of this it's not it's not the again netflix or or even even a novel it's not the war and peace that stands on your my shelf it, these are real people we're talking about and so is zelensky who yeah. who i am sure you know like if you watch him he doesn't have time to shave it's not a pr move you know when you don't sleep you will he probably doesn't have time to brush his teeth you know yeah. things like this we we need to still maintain this humane human connection i think no i think it's it, i i think what you say is critical and it is it's it is easy i think to get caught up in the the hopefulness of it i know i i get i get caught up in the in the the inspirational nature of of the people and the bravery just generally speaking the bravery that, that the ukrainian people have showed um, cause it's, it's really, it's, it's market and it's not something we're used to seeing. I mean, it, we're just not. So, you know, for, for Zelensky to stand up in the way that he has for already now, as long as it's been going on, I think Putin thought this thing was going to be over in 48 hours and that Zelensky would leave like, um, the Afghanistan guy left and, uh, and that would be it. And it, it, that, that has not happened. And every day that, that Zelensky is around is a victory, um, you know, and if God forbid something happens to him, then he is a martyr. So, you know, Putin has already lost the narrative war with him, no matter what happens in, in a sense. Let's talk then about the, because you, you've spent a lot of time reporting on on the atrocities and they are atrocities. This is not a, a thing where they came in and, and, and took out military installations to try to do this and that. They're basically just blowing shit up indiscriminately, or that isn't even the right word. They're blowing shit up purposefully to kill innocent people to, to hit they're hitting hospitals they're hitting schools um and they're doing that because their their soldiers are awful i think and that's all they can do now is just blow shit up from a from a distance um is there any larger trend in what you're seeing is that is that right i mean it's right right i got you not just from the distance and that's important to know um, yes, you know, there's a big file for the Hague, for the International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. uh, that is being uh, collected now as we speak. And um, yes, they do uh, strike uh, using missiles, projectiles of different kinds, um, civil infrastructure. They hit uh, important supply networks like water, power, heat is off. Um, that's what they target. Their targets are also TV towers and communications hubs. So people are cut off uh, the rest of Ukraine and then the information space is being changed because they turn on the Russian propaganda channels. But um, in addition to that, and in addition to uh, ruined, destroyed, damaged hospitals, kindergartens, schools, churches, theaters, libraries, that's the least I have the documents for all of this, what I'm saying, yeah. in different cities, in Kharkov, in Mariupol, in Chernihiv, uh, in Kiev, uh, food supplies, they're consistently burning agricultural uh, equipment and uh, warehouses with food. But in addition to this, there's also on the ground 
atrocities where the soldiers are shooting the civil population. They're shooting children, they're shooting uh, women. Uh, there are several intercepted phone calls. I listened to them um, where Russian soldiers discuss with their mothers and wives um, their orders they have received to shoot at children and to shoot at anybody who they see it. And I've seen the videos just this morning before we spoke when I was doing my um, daily morning update, I saw a video of um, a tank in Mariupol standing on one side of the street and a person moving, just walking, a civilian on the other side of the street. From what I've seen, it was an older person, an older man. And then you see the tank firing and just completely blasting off the person on the street. Yesterday, I saw a video of uh, Kadyrovitz Chechens uh, shooting at the bus stop. They look at the bus stop where two people are sitting, and then they start shooting around it in the perimeter. So this, the, there's this sadistic tendencies, which is, um, I mean, I can list a lot of these atrocities. I'm not going to because uh, the shock factor is the territory of propaganda. I mean, I share some, I don't share the most graphic uh, pictures and videos that I see, I put them aside, but my goal is not to shock people who read my feed uh, to PTSD. Um, that, that is not fair to people, that's what Russians do. We don't wanna do that. However, it is there. Uh, and um, I spoke to psychologists and different experts trying to figure out the explanation for that. And there are different, uh, there's nothing that I can share publicly yet, uh, but um, I have uh, confirmed reports of Russian soldiers uh, looting the stores in the occupied territories, stealing alcohol, vodka and other alcohol, getting very drunk and actually shooting each other. Uh, there are instances where Russian tanks were shooting Russian tanks. And there are also verified reports of Chechens shooting Russian soldiers who want to defect. I heard deserve. that too, yeah, yeah. So their, not only their morale is extraordinarily low, but they are confused and um, confused to the point where they turn against each other. And as a, someone who was forced to study the military science, I know that the morale of the troops is the most important factor. And uh, experts confirm that Putin's main miscalculation was underestimating the morale of the Ukrainians, the unity of the Ukrainians, and the uh, strive of the even Russian-speaking Ukrainians to stay independent and overestimating the morale or the readiness of the Russian troops, which is simply not there. Yeah, it seems like um, it, it, it's just more of a shit show than, than anybody had realized, at least, you know, looking at it as I was, not knowing much about it at all, but, you know, Russia has a military, you know, there's 100,000 troops on the border, and you think, oh, good God, what, what are they, they're going to swoop in and do the thing, and uh, no, as it turns out, soldiers in, you know, it, military officers in Russia are very apparently very low on the totem pole. And, um, you know, a lot of these people don't want to be there. 
some of the Russian soldiers I read didn't realize they were even invading. They thought it was like a, a live exercise. They didn't even know they were, they were in Ukraine. It looks to me like, I mean, insofar as there was any logic to it initially, it looked like um, what they were trying to do was come down sort of that eastern corridor on the other side of the Dnieper River there and, and kind of get in, into those regions to kind of connect Crimea to Russia and, and, and go that way. That seems to be where most of the, the shelling and the destruction has taken place. You know, Kharkiv is, is obviously, you know, very close to Russia on the closer to the eastern uh, border than Kiev is, which is uh, f farther to the west and a little bit more inland and, and isolated, harder to get to, um, which is one of the reasons I think they haven't gotten it yet. But now, I don't know that there's any plan at all. It doesn't look like they're doing anything other than trying to figure out what to do, you know? Well, I'm monitoring the military advance, and um, I have a big map in front of me, and I also have some sources and online maps, and I listen to military experts. And um, there are several scenarios, and they are shelling the western parts of Ukraine, starting as of yesterday. Okay. Uh, a, you know, we all heard about the strike right next to Poland uh, on the base where the U.S. troops, the Florida National Guard, was training, uh, and they recently left there. So that, that is, of course, symbolic. Uh, Russians are very keen, the Kremlin is very keen on symbolism. So that, that's a demonstration. Um, they uh, hit Odessa region today. They're uh, there, casualties. Uh, they did hit Vinitsy. They did hit, they basically right now, the air raids overnight are all over Ukraine. All regions uh, have to go to the shelter. I, I get this signal, so I see it. It's not from okay. report. I get like wherever you are in Ukraine and whatever small city in the east or in the west or in Odessa, uh, my friend sent me a video of the, uh, she sends me a lot of videos of air raids, but this one, I, I heard the shooting. We don't know what these explosions were. Maybe they were those explosions in Odessa region that killed a few people, but you don't know if you were just there as a resident um, of, of the, you know, member of the territory defense, you just don't know. So, but for the plan, I think there is, there is a plan. And I don't know if we can use the word plan per se, because yeah. I think what's critical to understand here, that we are trying to come to the situation with the logic of a mentally sane person, of, of, of people who have their brains more or less in order. We're shocked, we are horrified, but we, most of us, are not mentally ill. We are dealing with the situation that is completely in grasp and controlled by a madman. And by now, uh, many psychologists actually spoke about that, CIA spoke about that. Many experts confirm what I'm saying now and what is just my point of view. I watched many videos uh, with Putin now and previously, unfortunately, for many yeah. years, because as you know, I've been writing about him for the last 
10 years and I'm from the same town. I, I mean, his wife studied at the same faculty at the same university where I did. I never met her, thank God. But I mean, it, we come from the same environment. I understand his body language. I uh, see his facial expressions, um, which has changed. Before he was just a criminal, he was a bandit. Uh, with the inferiority complex, clep uh, kleptomania, uh, other conditions. Right now, possibly after two years of isolation from COVID, possibly due to other reasons that we don't know, this person is insane and he's in the feet now. And somehow, we don't know exactly how, he managed to hold uh, his close environment, most probably with blackmail or the a mutual responsibility concept of which I spoke many times. It's like uh, they are all complicit in a crime and if they if they leave him now, they will be, um, they will face tribunal. So they can't leave him. So anyway, this small group of people with a madman on top are controlling the situation and moving the army that is disoriented and speaks openly about not knowing what are they doing there. If you listen to this conversation, to which I listen a lot, the soldiers say, why did he send us here? We don't know what we are doing here. There are no fascists here. Uh, these people speak the same language. Uh, they look like us. Uh, many of them have relatives there. And if you watch the videos of the local population, actually speaking Russian to the soldiers, screaming at them, uh, go home, we don't want you here, we are Ukraine, in perfect Russian. And these guys who are 19, 20, they look at them and sometimes their nerves can't stand it anymore, they start shooting just because they can't stand this anymore, they are being yeah. called fascists in turn. So uh, we, we are dealing with a crazy situation and we're trying to judge it from the point of view of Western logic and our more or less comfortable life yeah. here. It doesn't work. Um, okay, wait, let, we have to take a quick break. We're gonna be right back with Zarina Zabriskie. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers. Leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Zarina Zabriskie. Sorry about that. Um, Putin. I want to talk more about Putin. You mentioned before we, we turned the camera on that his childhood was interesting because he grew up or, or, or came of age during the siege. So he actually knows what it's like. Oh, go ahead. Almost correct, Greg. But he was born after the siege. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. 
but to the parents and to the family that survived the siege. Uh, and he uh, interestingly wrote an essay or an article or a story for a children's magazine which I shared on Twitter yesterday, where he gives all this family lore and he repeats the stories all the time. I've seen them in multiple sources. He has quite a compulsion to speak about it, like most people, including myself, because, you know, over a million people starved to death in uh, besieged Leningrad in uh, 1941. It started in September 1941 and lasted for 900 days. At the time, the city was completely cut off. Um, the, any communication or any roads, the only road that existed was during the extremely severe winter. Uh, and it was called the ice road, the road of life. And the trucks would drive on the frozen lake to deliver bread. And actually, one of my relatives was the truck driver, and he was injured uh, and then fell into the icy water and then died. So oh as you could God. see, oh, every family has this law. My own family did not survive the siege. On one side, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, and my grand-uncle, who was a poet, a 19-year-old poet, uh, they all starved to death. In my family, we have three people named after these uh, victims. And so does almost every family from Leningrad. And to us, uh, this trauma is deep ingrained. And apparently to some, like Putin, uh, it gives, uh, it feeds uh, this uh, man-eating fury somehow, because he's, uh, he tells stories like his father who worked for NKVD, which is an earlier version of the KGB, mm -hmm. by the way, uh, somehow got back from the front to Leningrad, which is already, how did he get back? Okay, but I didn't research it, so maybe let's say <laughs> he did. And then he's walking down the street, and there, there are some rescuers carrying his wife on the stretches, which is already very hard to believe, because again, I know the stories of it, there were very few rescuers, they were all starving to death. And then she reaches out for him, and he sees her, and he takes her, and he saves her. Well, I mean, that doesn't sound like a real story, but what we know is a fact is that his older brother uh, died there as a child, either of starvation or diphtheria, and he is buried in the mass grave, which Putin uh, every year visits uh, with flowers. This year, just the month before he started this war on the 27th of January, he was there at the Piskorovsky Memorial Cemetery, putting the flowers there. And then he turns around and he besieges Mariupol, of which everybody heard, exact same scenario. No food, no heat, no electricity. They melt snow for water. They're being bombed, they're in shelters. Uh, then not many people heard of the little town of Izum, which is also being besieged in the same very way. It's erased from the face of earth and there is no uh, supplies and no way to communicate with it. So I, I think this is just my personal opinion. Something went drastically wrong in his head and he's playing these games that 
we all grew up with. We all grew up with playing war, where they're bad Nazis and they're the good Russians, and everybody's running around screaming, hand the ho, Hitler kaput. And he's still there, you know, like then he degraded from his game of criminals in the 90s, which is still going on, you know, with the racketeering and burning people alive and kidnapping family, which was his main game. He's now at his old age deteriorated and he somehow slid all the way back to his childhood trauma. And in his mind, somehow, He's the liberator, right? Fighting the Nazis. I'll send you the picture that he uses an illustration for his story, where you see the sad Nazis and the German shepherds running around. I mean, I'm traumatized by the same stories. I feel it in my bones. I I know I I see where he's coming from. Somebody needs to, you know, medicate him, do something. It's interesting because the you know his his whole idea of denazification of the ukrainians being nazis is very weird to me to, to my ears it's it's a, like what why are you making that claim first of all, you have a president who's jewish probably he's not a nazi probably um you know there's a good chance he's not and then you know what are you talking about there's you know every country has right-wing elements certainly but that ukraine has never been a, i know of a place where that that's a pervasive problem um so maybe that's that's it maybe he's trying to you know, let, let, speak that fantasy into existence in some way. Let me comment on this for the sake of accuracy. Um, A. Zelensky uh, is Jewish and his family also suffered losses in Holocaust. I believe mm -hmm. his father is the only survivor of four brothers, you know. Anyway, the family suffered losses during the Holocaust. Just like the part of my family from Ukraine is in Babi Yar, Two that was just shot by, by Putin's army, second time around. First they were shot by Nazis, now they're being bombed by the Russian Nazis. So, I mean, the same with Zelensky. B, the comment on the whole Nazi um, ideas in Ukraine, just like about any nation, Ukraine does have Nazis. I mean, it, you, America, the United States of America has them. Uh, well, even Germany these days has them, although it's illegal. There are many more of them in Russia. I studied them. I wrote articles about them. You can look them up. I did the research. And yes, they, they, they were, uh, there were people who collaborated with the Nazis during the World War II. There were quite a few of Ukrainians who did. There were also many more Ukrainians who fought against the Nazis. Yes. And after the war, these collaborators were put to a very harsh punishment. But so were the collaborators all over Europe. So um, Ukraine had one more factor, just like countries in Europe. They hated the Soviets. They hated the Soviets who just... Uh, imposed Holodomor, the right. uh, man-made starvation of which six million died in Ukraine that was made by Stalin. And that just happened in the 30s. So yeah. when the Germans came, they were as bad as the Russians. So you like, you choose your bad, right? And uh, anti-Semitic sentiment was 
very strong in both Russia and Ukraine. I, I mean, at all times. I, I know that because I studied history and literature, and I know that because I grew up there. We were not treated as equals. We were always looked at different species. That That is a fact. However, Ukraine, in the 30 years of independence, overcame that. I mean, there's still like daily things that to American sensitive ear could sound like anti-Semitic. But the fact that um, Ukraine has democratically elected Zelensky speaks for itself. And I was in Odessa and Kiev, and I saw a lot of Hasidic Jews. I saw synagogues. I went on excursion of Jewish Odessa given to me by a wonderful guide. So I could see how the situation changed. It, it, it is, you know, so elements like in any other countries are there. I mean, but in the Nazi Nazis were way more popular in Russia than in Ukraine. So yeah, yeah, it's it, the whole thing is. Um, this is what I wanted to ask you. Last time we 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 spoke, I you know, like I said, we, um, you know, you were very pessimistic. So now that this has happened, was there anything in particular that surprised you, either for good or for bad, about what what has happened? Is there anything that you're like, okay, this I maybe I would have predicted, this I maybe would have predicted, but holy shit, I didn't see that coming. Yes, I mean, I, I saw the war coming, as many of my Ukrainian friends, we discussed that when I visited in September, October, we talked about it. That didn't surprise me. That Putin has all imperial ambition and that he's crazy did not surprise me. I wrote about it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Anyone can find my notes from the Putin con that took place in New York in 2018 when he was being reelected with all the best minds of the world. And I'm not talking about myself. I was just recording it. But we had anybody from Gary Kasparov uh, uh, to the president of Estonia, to Luke Harden, to Pete Brahara. I mean, they, they, they were like creme de la creme of the world. Uh, the creme de la Kremlin. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and it was called Putin Con, and the goal was to stop, to stop and to warn. And the uh, major publications just did not cover it. There was no coverage of that, but I mean, I'm glad I did. So it's all there. We all warned about it. That did not come as a surprise. That Ukrainians defend themselves like this does not come as a surprise. I have many friends. I've seen them. I know these people. I, I am part Ukrainian and I have Ukrainian family members. I know that. I, you know... It, these are courageous people it's in their culture. If we have time, I would like to mention a little bit of the difference between two countries and oh, the yeah. difference in mentality. But what did surprise me and killed the part of me forever, and not just me, but everybody I know from the former Soviet Union, are the atrocities that we talked about. I mean, to see people who grew up in this in my birth town, even if I left this birth town never to return in 15 years, um, killing people with cruelty and any lack of human sentiment, uh, like in my, to a certain extent, they outdid Nazis in 20 days. You know, I've seen things that I'll never unsee. 
I did not know that the country that produced literature that, you know, like I dedicated my whole life to literature, I did not think. Sorry. I did not think that people who can read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy could do this. And I, that's one of my, well, I mean, like my number one concern, not concern, fear, horror, pain is Ukraine. And people who are dying, they're real people, real children, real women, real men, real everyone, real animals, you know, everyone and everything that has been erased and burned and tortured there. The, the forests that Russians are now uh, uh, intending to cut, to use for the Russian army needs and then to sell the beautiful forests. Ukraine is a beautiful country. I mean, that is the main thing. But my personal loss the, the 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 last drop of this loss is the culture that that nurtured me and that I still had some affinity with. You know, I had this channel in which I put a lot of my soul. I had to stop it. I I ended all my shows with the with the Ukrainian anthem. I cannot continue. I I cannot write. Luckily, I wrote in English. I I I left this language a long time ago. I I. I already lost lost my own personal ability to to write or exist creatively in it. English is my language of choice, you know. In this case, I, I feel like Nabokov felt before. I mean, it's but now I can't even. When I speak, sometimes me and my closest friend I know from the time we were six years old, we speak to each other. We always spoke Russian to each other, and then in the midst of the conversation, we we realize that we speak the language of the occupants, the language of fascists. I can't speak, you know. I feel like I have no words left. That, and, and that 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 did. I mean, I still had hope at least for the culture, at least it, it's bad for me. I mean, thank you for sharing that. And I wanna say, you know, from, from where you sit, like what's happening now is, is the government, you know? It's like you said, it's a madman and it's kids mostly in the military and it's people that are either fucked up or evil or just coerced into doing this. and. One thing that I thought was very um, surprising was how many people in Russia, how many Russians stood up and protested this war right from the get-go. And, um, you know, I don't think that this is an indictment of Russian culture by any means. I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a call to arms for the Russian people, the, 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 the soul of the Russian people to get rid of this guy and reclaim itself, you know? You're very kind, uh, Greg. You are very kind. I know you by now very well, and you you, you have a heart of gold and gold. And unfortunately, I have to say, yes, I know I have friends from opposition and I'm helping some to escape, some to settle in the place where they had to walk, swim, climb out of this hole. But there are so many that uh, I think they are brainwashed beyond repair. The majority, I mean, I, I see them 
that I had friends, they are not my friends anymore for a long time, but I've, I see them. I see those who are silent. I see those who approve. I see those who are hanging on to their material well-being and to whom their goddamn, I don't know, couches and uh, mortgages are more important than lives. And I mean, there's so much fear there. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for those who only, or my friends who fought, you know, of whom people didn't hear, but they fought, there are many, but I have zero respect and I despise. And at this point, I can say that I honestly hate this other silent majority. I consider them complicit. I consider them criminals. I consider all those who made their money and thought that it was okay to have Putin for all this time, especially all the generation. The kids didn't have a choice. They were born under Putin. They had little resources to live. My peers who chose this life, they need to go to The Hague with Putin. No, I agree. I mean, but look, it's not just a Russian thing. There are people in the, in the United States that, that, have, that are gone too, that are zombified, that don't understand. It's just, they're just gone. And so it's a worldwide problem. And, uh, you know, what, uh, Putin is the leader in Russia for a lot of reasons. We came very close to Trump being the leader for four more years would have been forever. And, uh, you know, by, by the hair of our chinny chin chin, we managed to avoid that. So, uh, you know, that January 6th was terrifying and we came very, very close to losing everything here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's hard for people in the United States listening to this to, to understand what it looks like when somebody else, somebody they know or thought they knew or liked or had things in common with is a collaborator with a fascist evil regime. And uh, I don't know how to process that. I don't know how to process that. I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if, if, if there's uh, enough people in the middle who are silent because of just, they just don't know or they're apathetic or, or when things are getting pushed in the right direction. I will say that, you know, with this Ukraine stuff, it, it really has affected people. I have people I know in my life who I look to as sort of barometers for how people that don't pay that much attention to the news think about things. And if they're not aware of stuff, I know that it hasn't penetrated that level yet. Everybody knows about Ukraine. Everybody. It, it, it has permeated everywhere in this country. And I think most of the people, a, a vast majority, if not, you know, high 90s, is on the side of Ukraine. The only people that aren't are you know, Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard and these people we knew. We, the people that I've been calling traitors on Twitter for the last five years are, what do you know, traitors. But, but the, the, even, even the people like the Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy feel the need to have the Ukraine pin on during the State of the Union address because that's how far public opinion is in a month or three weeks it was at that point, which is a radical sea change. We went from a situation where the entire, you know, NATO was on uh, on, on life support. Uh, the Western alliance was fractured. You know, the United States for four years under Trump had completely abdicated any responsibility for it. And Biden and, and Harris and Blinken and the diplomats in three weeks put all that shit back together again. And now it's it's works. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I've laid off pronouncements. I've laid off 
advising what I think Biden should do, because I have the fucking idea, you know, the, the, the sooner that I, I want the war to be over as soon as possible with as, as, as little loss of life as possible. And if it winds up getting rid of Putin, which I think it has to, uh, so much the better, um, you know, one way or the other. Uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's a lot to process. I used to think we were living in boring times when nothing was happening. Jeez, I don't know what happened. I mean, God, you know, save us from times like this. I mean, I, I lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I thought that was dramatic. But believe me, it was way less. I mean, it was harsh, but the war is the worst thing that 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 can happen, especially when when you're there. I, I want to add a couple of things here. Like you, you say, you say all the right and all the good things that gives so much food for thought and um you know like one thing i want to warn here like um our society especially with the influence of the social media and the way we are interconnected now um tends to go through these hypes and their trends everything is trending yeah at the moment, Ukraine is a bit of a trend in hashtag, and it's fashionable. Just yeah. as it was fashionable at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union to have Russia, everything. I remember that. At the time, we didn't have Facebook, but it was fashionable to have Russian food festivals and Russian filmmakers and whatnot. Uh, right now, I could see how it's a little bit of a trending thing. It's a not a it's very easy to go that way and we need to do everything we can to stop ourselves from going that way uh it, it, we are speaking about life yeah yes and I, suffering i i think that's a good point and i i i think though um and and i i know exactly what you're saying you're saying this is trending now in six weeks nobody will remember um and that's the danger i think or i should say i hope that the, the fight in Ukraine, uh, the, the Ukraine against Putin's Russia is basically the fight for democracy, as flawed as, as the Ukrainian democracy is, because it, it is. But it is the fight for people to have self-determination and to have laws and stuff like that against bullies and against fascists. And that's something that that theme, that good versus an evil theme, this is not a war. This is not Vietnam. This is not Afghanistan. This isn't those things that are very, very nebulous and, and shadowy that were the where we have to be sold on who's right and who's wrong. And uh, you know, the president has to convince us that somebody's Hitler. We don't need convincing that Putin is evil. He's evil. He's fucking evil. It's it's obvious. Everyone knows it. That has a, a, a eyes in their head. Um, so what I hope is that. This will be a galvanizing point and an inflection point in the world, you know, not just in, in Ukraine and Russia, but in the United States, in Europe, where these, these fascist uh, movements that are everywhere uh, need to be on the decline. They need to be checked and they need to be on the decline. I think the reason that they're um, ascending now as opposed to before is because most people who lived under fascism, certainly in Western Europe or whatever, in Spain, they're all they're they're either very old or they're dead. You know that that whole initial movement of fascism was so long ago that we don't have primary sources anymore, other than in Eastern Europe, um, uh, and the Eastern Europeans are all worried about it. So we should listen to them. Uh, but you know this is dangerous stuff. I think this what's happening in Ukraine underscores how dangerous it is, and 
you know, the fact that Putin is just he's just doing the Hitler playbook. You know, uh, I wrote about this when when the last time you were on, when the podcast dropped, they, it's 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 exactly doing what Hitler was doing. And, you know, I think we've recognized it to some degree. So my hope is that not only will Putin be defeated, but these movements everywhere will be defeated. I mean, Viktor Orban in Hungary is on the side of 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 the West now. And that's a guy who, you know, he's Mogilevich's bag man and he's in with Putin, but even he couldn't, he couldn't go there. So that tells you something, you know, Erdogan in Turkey seems to be, you know, still kind of on the, the, the West side a little bit and, and stuff. China's been, you know, very, very reluctant, I think, to get involved at all, which is good. Um, I, I thought for a minute, oh my God, China's going to give them aid and what are they going to give him? Like some, you know, I guess some, you know, chicken and broccoli to send to the troops or whatever, or, or uh, not arms or something like that. So that's my hope. Anyway, I don't know if it'll happen, but, uh, you know, I hope that this at least gets people to pay attention and and gets everybody out of their bubble of, of, of dumb shit that we're all obsessed with all the time. I mean, that's one of the things that's crazy is you're looking on Twitter and it's Ukraine and it's, you know, this horrible thing has happened and Putin did this and, uh, you know, there, there's stuff going on in, in Poland and here and there. And then it's, um, oh, my God, Darth Maul is being written out of the Obi-Wan Kenobi movie. Oh, my God, Pete Davidson is going into space. And it seems insane that anybody cares about that stuff now. And yet life goes on. I don't know. It's all it's all crazy. Um, what I wanted to end with. Uh, and I think, I mean, you can comment, you want to comment now on anything I just said and then we'll. Yes, I did. I, I had two, I, I actually two things that I wanted to comment. And there's one more thing. If we have time for a little comparative history of Ukrainians, okay. Russian, I think it could be interesting, but it's up to you to decide. But what I wanted to say in regards of what you had and in regards of trends and how it occupies our lives and uh, mental space and how everybody's in and everybody in America is paying attention. There is another danger there and I think we have to address it and be honest here uh, because there's a lot of wars going on in the world and they somehow didn't touch the American psyche in the way the Ukrainian war did and there could be many reasons for it you know many they were during the war, but there is one hard to say uh, reason that I nevertheless I think needs to be addressed. Ukrainian people are white, they are yeah. Caucasian, they look similar to many people in America who respond in a similar way. And I've heard a lot from uh, people of color from different countries who feel offended by this attitude. And I hear that sentiment because as I mentioned before, I was growing up Jewish in Russia. Uh, to you, I look exactly the same as you do. To Russians, I never look the same. I know what it is when you are singled out for your looks not for your skin color in my case, but for the shape of your nose and for the way you speak and different things. So I think we need to be very careful here and we need to just be aware of it, yeah. just not to get overwhelmed by that unity because I've heard some some good friends here saying like oh these are people just like us they 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 take their kids to school but you know in Syria or in Afghanistan people take their kids to school just the same way and I, I know Iranians and you know we and I have to say it 
and put it somewhere in some space so it's just as a flag there and they they there's not always all heroic ideal space there there were shameful incidents in r in ukraine where say uh the uh, foreign students from africa or india were discriminated and they were not allowed to get on the evacuation buses or were treated differently and it's important to know as it is because the russians picked up on it right away and the trolls uh, were pushing the trend, save Indian uh, students in Sumi, uh, because they know that this is something that will inflame and uh, break the unity of people in the West. So there, there's the very complex sides to it. It's not like on black and white, simple situation. And it's important to remember. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point too, because yeah, what Putin is doing what he did in Syria. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same playbook. And you're absolutely, there's no, there's no question that that's why it's, it's, uh, um, you know, reaching the American audience. I think the fact that it's in Europe also is important. Um, yes. I, I, you know, but what does that mean? It means that the people are white to your point, you know? So, uh, yeah, I, I, that, that, that's an important point. The last point then is when you said that you don't have any recommendations for Biden and fair enough, I don't think we can or, you know, like, I'm not sure if I'm in a position to give such recommendations. Nevertheless, I sometimes do. When Biden just came to power, I wrote the whole program, what I think needs to be done. And the priority number one should be addressing the hybrid war and information warfare. And I'm still convinced of that. And that's out there as my program. But what I wanted to say is that my recommendation now would be, and I know that this is a very controversial point, but this is something that Ukraine has been asking for a while. And now the Estonian government is asking, and a lot of experts are asking, finding the way to close the sky, yeah. making Ukraine is no-fly zone. And I can give you my argument for that very briefly. Go ahead. I, I listen to a lot of, unfortunately, um, and I need some, you know, free therapy for that. Russian propaganda channels, which are the uh, mouthpieces of Putin, say Vladimir Solovyov, who is, as you know, uh, he is the Kremlin representative. He's been having talks with Putin and with his press secretary Peskov forever. He's basically saying everything the Kremlin tells him to say. We're right. not talking about free press here. The, what we hear is basically Putin's words. And Salaviev has been consistently saying, and it has been aggravating in tone, that Ukraine is just a polygon. It is just a training uh, playground. And what they really want, they want NATO to retreat to the uh, 90s boundaries. They want a different agreement with the nuclear weapon. And basically, they say all the time, we are going to hit the NATO. We are going to hit you. They say it openly. I'm translating. And so they are provoking the NATO constantly. They are playing with chemical weapons. You know, they're using phosphorus, white phosphorus weapon there now, which they've been specifically told not to. Um, they are constantly endangering 
all of us by creating uh, high-risk situations at numerous nuclear plants. The, the yeah. biggest nuclear plant in Europe is their hands. And just today I shared, translated the information from the authorities at Energadar uh, that they are shooting next to the nuclear plant unit active. That they and they are doing it nonstop. They put uh, ammo, um, amiac, uh, and mines in the lake next to the nuclear plant. They they have plans of setting on fire the forests around Chernobyl, and they uh, consistently cut the power supply to Chernobyl, which creates the uh, risk of uh, explosion eventually. Yeah. So, and Putin has openly said on air, everybody, the whole world heard it, that uh, the nuclear weapons are in the, on the high readiness degree or whatever they call it. So, I mean, and so far, everything they've been saying, in a way, they are doing. So in a way, if they're not stopped, and if they see this weakness of the West, they are going to proceed. And you, are, you will ask why, because, you know, it's uh, self-destructive, it's suicidal. But that's the whole point. And we talked about this before on that previous show. Putin is on decline. He knows he needs to go. He already has anything material he might want. What my opinion he wants is the glory. He wants to go into history like Alexander Macedoni Macedonian. He want to be this great leader of the nation. And even if he takes the whole world with him, he will be remembered, don't ask me by whom, because nobody will be left, as this great controversial, if so, leader of the past, Napoleon in a way. And it doesn't fit into our logic or into a healthy mindset, but that's what we're seeing here. And that's why I think the Biden administration and the NATO, if they listen to Zarina Zabriskie, should close the <laughs> sky and uh, take all the measures possible uh, to take, take the, the root of the civil out. Um, the cockroaches will remember Putin. They'll remember him gladly as one of their own who rose up and did great things. Uh, when I said I wouldn't criticize Biden, I meant about just about the war stuff now, not about everything else. Everything else is open. But I, I think that, um, and I have no inside information. I'm just guessing. He's got so many people that he has to manage, right? Uh, he knows all this. He knows he doesn't want, there, there is a red line. I don't know where it is, but when he, when he gets there, Biden is not soft. He's not going to just, you know, let him get, have his way. He's not. So there is a red line. My thinking is it's called the no-fly zone. What it really means is that U.S. fighter planes and NATO fighter planes are going to fly all over the country. That's going to escalate something, probably. And maybe in Biden's calculus, hasten the road to war. And I think what he's trying to do is to save as many lives as he can, even though it's horrible because we're, we're watching Putin kill people every day in this horrible, horrible way. Um, the economic sanctions that we put on Russia are unprecedented and are going, they're already having an effect and are going to have a huge effect in the next couple of weeks. I think in some ways it's a game of, you know, he's waiting for that, I think. Um, 
I don't believe that he's just like, nah, we'll just let him do this. I'm fine with it. I think he knows. I think, I think that if they were in the room together, Biden would punch him in the fucking nose. Honestly, I think he hates the guy. And, uh, you know, he's got a lot of, uh, smart people telling him, you know, giving him advice. He's a decisive, compassionate man. And, uh, so far, the way that he's done stuff in the war to this point, I think has been really good. I think his when he started releasing the intelligence and saying, Hey, Putin's going to do this. That totally threw Putin, but Putin hasn't been the same since then that threw him for a loop that I don't think he's recovered from. I think he had exactly that plan in place. And when he couldn't do that, I think he's been lost since then. So, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I have confidence in him. Now, maybe next time you come on the show, my confidence will have been shattered. I don't know. I hope not. But uh, I do have confidence. I think, thank God that it's Biden and not Trump, obviously. Yes. Trump would be like, great. We, I want to I build a Trump Tower or Kiev. And, you know, Odessa would be great gambling site for my beauty pageant or something. It would just be uh, horrible. Uh, I, I, I shudder to think what would be happening. So uh, I do feel, you know, I, 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 I'm very, very impressed with how they've handled it so far. At least all I can think is, what would I do? And is he doing what I would do? No, he's doing things even smarter than things I would do. So I'm like, okay, I think we're going to be all right. Uh, especially with the way that, that Europe has, has come into line. You know, you have a Sweden and a Switzerland. You have Boris Johnson saying some of the right things. The guy, the guy's an active, uh, <laughs> he's just a Kremlin troll there. Uh, it, it, and he's, you know, even he is, has started to uh, see the light a little bit. I don't know. I just feel, I feel a little tiny bit. Uh, hopeful. But again, it's easy for me to say I'm sitting here in New York. It's a it's a nice day out finally. And, you know, my city isn't being shelled by this madman. Well, it's very, very frustrating to have to wait, because if we wanted to, we could take Putin out in about two hours. And the nukes, I don't know. I think that that's saber rattling. I don't think he's going to do it. I don't even know. I don't know that orders would be followed. I don't know that the damn things work. So you know, I think there's more of a chance of Chernobyl blowing up and there being like that kind of thing than an actual bomb going off, which is it's just as horrible in its way. You know, it doesn't I don't want to minimize the risk of all this stuff. But, uh, you know, if, if he has nukes, we, we're, we're not, when do we draw the line? We're going to let him invade Poland because he has nukes. I mean, we have to draw the line somewhere. So why don't we just draw it, I guess, is, is the thing. And I think Biden knows. it. I think I hope. Yeah, I, I mean, I really hope I'm wrong every time for the last 20 years. <laughs> the problem is that you're never wrong. That's the problem. I, and I don't want to, a lot of people are asking me now, uh, do you feel justified? And it's like, what, what is wrong with you? Why would I like to be justified in this way? I would want to be wrong. It just... Uh, you see, I just saw these things way too close. That's why I'm right. I'm not right because I'm so smart or I, you know, know that much about politics. No, I mean, I read my share lately, but I'm, I wasn't even interested in politics to start with. I was always interested in literature and other things, art, you know, I don't know, beauty. I love makeup. I love makeup. You know, I much rather be doing, you know, I had, you know, I sometimes do for fun. I do um, makeup gigs, you know, with girls. I like girly things. That's what I would rather be doing than, but I had to stop all this and I had to focus on 
on this. And the reason I know that is because when I, I, I was growing up and then when I was translating as a young translator back in St. Petersburg, I saw these people up close. I saw like former prime ministers that I was translating for. I mean, I, I was translating for Rishkov and Primakov and the drunken banquets that they had. I remember the jokes about the nuclear suitcase with the button when they would get drunk. You know, they, they are not what you think. They're not these people in ties and suits, you know, who sit there diplomatically and say long sentences. They don't. They are uh, deeply traumatized as children, uh, half mad, by now completely mad, out there mad. People who have power and had power, unlimited power for years and years, they, they would do it just for you. They, they don't have the reason. We, we do not imagine it, but I've seen it. I've translated for it. And so anyway, I really hope I'm wrong. Please, please, whatever is out there, make me be wrong. We're, we're due. I think we're due for something good happening. I don't know right. why. Maybe we deserve to, you know, our fate. But uh, I don't know. I feel like there's been so much bad shit lately. Let's have one nice thing for once yeah. go right. You know? That yeah. I go with you, Greg. You give me hope. You <laughs> think too much for everything that you do. You know, if if, if more people were like you, we would be in a completely entirely different world. And and I know a lot of good people. And I I thank all the good people who recently follow and care and you know share their time and resources it's so inspiring it to and not to me i mean i am in a safe non-war conflict but to my friends to my extended family to my um to to the whole people people i don't know in ukraine to all these people who are suffering terribly there and i want to say you know like i said at the top of the show I know that you you think that you're just you, you feel compelled to do what you've been doing. Um, you know, you, you even put down your 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 Mac cosmetics to do it. Uh, but it's important. What you're doing is really important. Not many. I was thinking about it today, you know, knowing that you were going to come on like you, you could speak the languages. You know, you could speak Russian. You can speak Ukrainian well enough to translate it. And you know what to look for. You know where the sources are. You have a, a Twitter platform. You can get the word out. Not a lot of people can do that, frankly. They just can't, or or, or they just don't care, you know. And and you have all of these things and and a gift. And uh, you know, I just I, I I look at you and I feel very inspired. So I want to say, you know, and I know people listening to this feel the same way. So I want to say thank you for your you know your work. And and I know you're modest and don't want to take any credit for it, but. I will not allow you to not take credit. I won't. It's my duty. You know, my, I do love cosmetics and healthcare, but um, my main thing is my writing and my novel. You know, I was about to finish my novel. When I know. But I feel like my novel has been canceled. I mean, literature kind of went bankrupt in the face of, of this tragedy. I, the only thing that... I can do as a writer now is this, so. I, it's weird though, because I feel the same way. And yet, I don't know, more people read our stuff now than, to, at least in my case. I don't know, it's weird. It's a, it's a very weird, I don't think my brain will be able to ever process this, all of this stuff. It's just, it's it, it's too much. Um, yeah. 
Do you want to uh, do you want to quickly go into the the Ukraine uh, Russia uh, opposites and 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 on that? If you feel that there's enough, I know we said a lot. I don't know if we we still have. It's gonna be. This is gonna be a long, long episode anyway. So I don't. I don't. Mind. I know you wanted to talk about it. So the least I can do is have you talk about something that you asked to talk about. I think it's important. I think everything we talked about is important. I, I think there is just so much there that um, uh, will give a different perspective to people who are already compassionate, but to bring more details and more layers and more nuances to the story is always helpful. You know, both you and I, I, you know, literary people, we know that, that, that everything is nuances. And um, so I, I just uh, recently worked on an article for the Byline Times, which I thoroughly recommend. Big fan of the Byline Times. Yep. Byline Times. Shout out. I'm a regular contributor to them by choice. Uh, I've chosen them. They've chosen me, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, recently, I just finished an interview with the two writers, an art critic and a, a novelist who are currently in Ukraine. And so they they really did a great job covering the differences. But when I was preparing, I went, I tried to sum up the differences in history between Ukraine and Russia. And I wanted to mention that because, you know, I'm quoting the Spinoza, one of my favorite quotes, uh, who said that if you want the present to be different from the past, study the past. And I mean, you need to look, why are these people seemingly uh, alike who often speak the same language and look similarly, are so different. And so it's true that uh, Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians, by the way, important, um, another dire situation there with the dictatorship and possible participation in this war. They all are rooted in the same country known in the past as the Kievan Rus. And it was right. a powerful metropolis uh, created in the ninth century. And it was flourishing and blossoming before the invasion of the Mongol empire. And there were huge chunk of land. If you enter the maps, look at that and it will tell you something about how empires come and go. Um, but then what happened, Tatar Mongols, Genghis Khan, uh, conquered the Kievan Rus. And um, around the 13th century, uh, they destroyed all the major cities. And that included Moscow and Kiev. 1240, and then, I think, Kiev burned to the ground. Yes, yeah. yes. And they, they, you know, they, they basically erased the culture. And that, that refers both to Russia and um, what we know currently as Russia and Ukraine, right? And so there's like, I'm not gonna go into all details, it will take another hour, but between the 14th and the 19th centuries, these areas were, were um, uh, uh, the, the areas that are now Ukraine, they belong to the wide range of empires and state. There were like the Golden Horde, Mongol, mm -hmm. uh, Tata Mongols, and then the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland. And there was the Crimean Hanat and the Habsburg Austria and the Russian Empire, of course. So it was going back and forth and it was split in different way. And so um, the the 
areas that are to the west that we now know is western Ukraine, where now Russians are kind of modest about shelling and bombing because it's so close to NATO territory, that belonged to Lithuania and Poland. That was a part of Europe. And they had the education there with the Western standard, with the Latin standard, where the monks were educated. And so what happens in the 17th century is these monks were arriving to Moscow, bringing these traditions there, and they influenced the Ukrainian monks influenced the Russian literature and Russian culture uh, in a, a very significant way. Say uh, the syllabic poetry or drama was uh, brought by uh, Simeon Polotsky, one of these monks. And then the Kiev uh, Mahila Academy existed in Kiev, obviously, and it had a huge influence on the Russian literary process throughout Peter the Great uh, reign. So, um, and again, it's important that it was split. You, you know, the Western independent tradition already existed there at the time. And then in Russia, they didn't know Renaissance, they didn't know Enlightenment, and that then turned to serfdom certain processes never happened. And that could be a key, and not to be touched upon lightly, but that could be a key to this uh, omnipresent fear that Russians have and Ukrainians very obviously demonstrated not having, right? Yeah. The courage, even in their anthem now, which was adopted only 30 years ago, uh, but it's an old song anyway, they are singing uh, that the Ukraine is not dead yet and will put our souls and hearts for our freedom. So they've been fighting for their freedom all along. And they've been fighting and fighting and never got it, uh, except for two years, right before the Bolshevik revolution. Yep. And for two years, they had their freedom. And then they became one of the founding republics of the USSR. And then the whole Bolshevik nightmare started with Stalin, like we mentioned before, uh, and Holodomor, right? With the- 32, 33, yeah. Exactly, when about 6 million of uh, peasants died because basically they were taking their food, their wheat to Russia. They, it was. Completely fabricated. It's, it's intentionally starved people to death. Millions of yeah. people. Stalin did. Yeah. Yes. He liked doing that. The, the, the Bolsheviks liked doing this, yeah. you know. And so, and then the World War II happened to both Ukraine and and Russia, where millions and millions were killed, and twenty about twenty millions uh, were the victims of Stalin's great terror. Right then, about six million for Holodomor, and then um, about six millions during World War II in Ukraine dur during the World War II. Right, so this we're talking about millions and millions, millions dead. Yeah, uh, in both countries, and so they shared this language of common trauma. And then they split and they went back to their tradition. They already were oriented towards the West. And that, that's what I feel is important to understand that Ukraine wasn't always the part of Russia and they have different tradition, different standards, different mentality. And it's only natural for them while sharing the language sometimes having completely different mentality. Yeah, I think when the Ukrainian, a Ukrainian princess married Somebody from, you know, from the Frankish yeah, lands. Yeah, 
in like yeah. 10, you know, 980 AD. And yeah. she signed her name and he marked an X because Ukraine also a very, you know, a very literary culture where the uh, literacy rate is always been traditionally high, this and that. And yeah. And Russia, to your point, I mean, the leadership of Russia has been certainly since the time of Ivan the Terrible in the mid 16th century, just horrific. Just just, you know, what we would think of as totalitarian, um, you know, Ivan the Terrible invented this, this the uh, secret state police state, you know, the, the, the black clad dudes on the on the black horses that terrorize people. You know, bad czar after bad czar, and uh, the one czar that that tried to like make life good for the serfs, they they assassinated him. So, it, yeah, it's it it's been a shit show, and it is important, I think, to understand those distinctions because certainly here in the United States, we tend to conflate them and think that the Soviet Union and Russia is the same thing, which it's not. Soviet Union is an empire Russia was part of, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, Thank you for listening. Thank yeah, of course. It. Now we can find you on Twitter. It's Zarina Zabriskie. You don't have it. You don't have it. It's just your name, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, I encourage anybody who isn't following you to go follow you because you're doing great work on there. Uh, and we'll look for your article in the Byline Times coming out soon. Zarina Zabriskie, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to see you. Thank you, Greg. And what if you track down these men and kill them? What if you murdered all of us? From every corner of Europe, hundreds, thousands would rise to take our places. Even Nazis can't kill that fast. Moscow never sleeps. Welcome back to Prevail. Thank you very much. How are you doing this evening? Uh, well, I, I'm living under the Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times. That's <laughs> where we're doing right now. You know, look, when I started studying this stuff 40 years ago, I certainly wanted to be relevant. I certainly wanted people to like ask me questions so that I could sound smart. I didn't want this. This is a level of chaos that we haven't seen in a long time. Okay, so start here. With the invasion of Ukraine, Putin has awakened NATO, the Western Alliance to the battlefield, but it's also the information battlefield. It's really been, it's like astonishing to watch how quickly people around the world have taken up the cause of the Ukrainians. It's really, it's, 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 it's stirring. It's hopeful, actually. But in Russia, where you lived for years, and the media is obviously tightly controlled, the perception is different. So how is the invasion being perceived in Russia? Is Putin's propaganda working? What are you hearing? I'm not hearing a lot. Okay. And I'm not hearing a lot because I'm not asking hard questions. Because... Anytime I'm communicating with anybody over there, they're at risk. So I'm not going to say, well, what do you really think that's going on? And then if they give me an answer that sounds like something I'd like to argue with, then I'll argue with it. And that doesn't do them any favors. Okay. I am not an agent of dissemination of information. All right. That's not my role in their lives. Yeah. If they ask, you know, what are they saying? Then maybe. But that still doesn't do them any favors. Yeah. Look, the, the Eastern Slavs are a brackish pond. Nobody's really totally Russian. Nobody's really totally Ukrainian, right? I mean, everybody has at least one great-grandparent. Everybody in Russia has at least one great-grandparent who was either A, born in Ukraine, B, ethnically Ukrainian, or C, spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Yeah. Right? The Russians don't have a view of Ukraine as this, like, 
naturalistically horrible place for them. This is why what's being sold to them, to the extent that they're buying it, is uh, our little brother to the south, who's generally you know easygoing if a bit goofy, is being riled up by you know the Nazis, the Azovites, the Benderovites, you know everybody, right? And if you live in a place like Moscow, that's really tough to eat. If you look, you know, it, it, you know that the Ukrainians are not easily turned into Nazis. You know that they elected a couple of Jews to run the country, which is a really, you know, it's really Bush League Nazism, if, you're, if you want to be honest. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't really know. Yeah, because there seems to be, I mean, the reason I ask is there seems to be, you know, obviously there's protests. There's people in the streets in St. Petersburg, in Moscow, in these places, you know, facing arrest and imprisonment. There's, there's school children doing it. Um, there's today, as we're recording this, it's Monday, it's the 14th. There's that woman who was the newscaster who went on and, uh, you know, with a placard behind the news so that to, to, to get the word out on the official state media, what was happening. You have celebrities and, and people, you know, who are influencers in Russia who are using social media. Um, you have people posting Amazon reviews and giving them one star and then, at, you know, putting the news in that way. There, there, there seems to be people who want to know what's going on seem to, maybe not now that communications have been, you know, shut down to some degree, but um, at least for the first couple of days when everything was still open, could see what was going on. And yet also, you know, it is a state-run outfit. It's like the whole thing is is, is Fox News equivalent, equivalently. And probably a lot of people, just like a lot of people in the United States who only get the news from Fox and from Facebook, get their news there from state TV and from, you know, Putinist Facebook posts and probably think that, uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, I've also read stories about Ukrainians calling, you know, who have parents in Russia saying, hey, this is happening. And the parents saying, no, it's not. That, that isn't what I heard on TV. So, you know, there seems to be a, a wide spectrum about what the Russian people believe. And I think it's important because if this thing is going to end in any way soon or, or, or in any way that's good for democracy and the planet as a whole, the best possible thing to do for it to wave for its end is for the, the Russian people to rise up and overthrow this guy. I think. Yeah. And on another planet where that was possible, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not saying. Which is one happen. of the reasons why I don't spend a lot of time trying to argue with them. Yeah. All right. They have about as much effect on their government as, you know, my theta waves have on the size of the big red spot in Jupiter. <laughs> I mean, I can think really, really, really hard until I have a headache and my eyes turn red, but that fucker isn't changing size. Yeah. Because there's no cause and effect relationship between the one and the other. You know, there, there used to be a joke in Russia. There are three things you can't change. Your eye color, your family, your mother's first name, and the president of Russia. Well, that, you know, that 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 may be a joke in Russia, but there was a time not that long ago. No, there wasn't. Uh, no, the, the, the Russian Revolution absolutely changed things. No, that, the Russian Revolution, historically, took probably 18 years to plan, right? Lenin... The guys who were behind Lenin, the, you know, the, the original Russian communists who were, you know, giving Marx hemorrhoids at the congresses in Europe, they started this off in the late 1870s. They assassinated a czar the in the 1880s. The reformist one, the one who was actually doing maybe who was the least exactly. horrible of all of the czars. Yeah. All right. And it was not a popular uprising. All right. It was a bunch of intellectuals, 
most of whom had spent a lot of time in prison, most of whom had found their way to being exiled to Europe, and who ultimately played footsie with the Kaiser to get smuggled back into Russia at a time of weakness after having made a deal that if they were supplied with arms, materiel, intelligence, etc., and they overthrew the Tsar, they would pull Russia out of the First World War. It was a bankrolled foreign intervention in Russian politics. It was not Masha and Ivan arising out of the fucking clog shop or beet fields inspired by the vanguard of the proletariat to, you know, create a people's worker democracy. Okay, but that might have been the posters, but that's yeah. not what happened. But what you have now, you have a lot more people though that that know what democracy looks like. That they they have a leader in Navalny who is at least capable of leading them, which he's is important. in jail. Yeah, right now he's in jail. Yeah, I'm just and, saying and, I, there there isn't really a process for releasing him until they overrun overrun the government. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Look. <laughs> I'm I, I'm playing devil's advocate. No, that that's fine. Yeah. That's fine, uh, and I'm going to play the devil. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no country on earth has a more the only thing that you can look at Russian history at and say, "Wow, they did that really well." Was a maximizing the ability of the leader to fuck the people. Okay. B minimizing the ability of the people to stop being fucked by the leader. C, minimizing the ability of the people to change the leader. No country in history has done a better job of that for the last half millennium. Yeah. Even the Chinese get overthrown, right? You know, even, even the sheikhs still kill each other the way they did in Rome, you know, where every, every Caesar acceded to his uncle's throne through the use of poison or inspired bodyguards. Right. Russia right. has looked at this and from before the time of Ivan the Terrible has said, fuck that. I have a better idea. Let's take somewhere between 10 and 15% of all of the force resources of our country and dedicate them to the preservation of the sovereign. We have never had a case where the petless guards turned and croaked the leader. They did that in Egypt. They've done that in India. They do that. They did that every 25 years in Rome. They do that in a lot of places. They don't do that in Russia. Yeah. Okay. Because people are not going to turn on them. The inside. Right? You, you mean you mean the people in the street people? No, the people in the street are irrelevant. They're about okay. as re they're about as relevant as your as the you know the kids at your local kindergarten. That's just how the system is built. Okay, so let me let me let me go back to what you just said because I think it's an important point. Ten to fifteen percent of the to of the total force. It's like if you're playing Risk and you get the, the the little army men in Risk, instead of fanning them out to try to conquer, they're going to take ten to fifteen percent and just plop them in Moscow, and that's mm -hmm. it. So yep. no one's ever going to come and take that place, even if that's the only thing left. They're not ever going to surrender that. that. That's what you're saying. Peter the Great moved the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg because he wanted to see the, you know, because he, he wanted to be a European country. He wanted a European capital, mm -hmm. right? And a bunch of fuck-ups under Lenin and the gang took that government in the space of 12 days because it is a vulnerable place. 
St. Petersburg is. Yeah. Okay. All right. It was, I mean, they serve, they were surrounded and blockaded by the Germans for 900 days. Okay. They couldn't quite get in, but neither could any food. If the government had been in Leningrad, Hitler would have won. Yeah. And Hitler would be running the world or his clones because he would have the oil and he would have the planes all the way to the Pacific. So the minute they took over the government, the Bolsheviks moved back to Moscow because Moscow is a concentric series of walls. Yeah. It may be flat. You know, it's got a couple of rolling hills, but it's generally a flat place. But it is a series of concentric circles going out about 30 miles from the Kremlin. Okay. And as such, they create a defense system, right? We had a treaty with them where we got a certain number of anti-ballistic missiles. We could put it anywhere we want and they could put theirs anywhere they wanted to. We protected NORAD, okay, which at the time was like in North Dakota. So all of our anti-ballistic missiles are sitting in the middle of cornfields. Okay. Right. Theirs surround Moscow. Yeah. Because this is because they're like, great, you've protected some reindeer. We are protecting our people. Okay. All right. Um, I, I've told you this before. If you took the standard riot policeman. Okay. And the standard conscript. All right. It, it wouldn't even be a contest. You know, the, the, the conscripts are puny, beaten on underfed, poorly trained, barely paid, barely clothed, okay? They're basically sex traffic, right? They're just, you know, moved from one rape camp to another, which we would call bivouacs or, you know, reserve bases. Okay. They do anything they can to get out of there, and the suicide rates there are ridiculous. Over in the police, these guys live good. They're big, they're well-fed, they're well-armed. Nobody will shoot at them. They can kill with impunity. They cannot you know, you know, throw, you know, throw them in the cage, let God sort out the ones that live. Yeah. There will never be any. And even better, because we're talking about Russians, they get to steal early on. And if you cannot steal at your job, your job sucks. Yeah. So being a policeman... I mean, it's a loathed profession, but it's a safe one. And all you have to do is, you know, bend your truncheon over the right number of crania every month and you get bonuses. All right. You don't even have to take a bullet for the boss. You just, anyone you don't like, you know, knock them down and knock down the three guys on either side. And there's never, <laughs> no one has ever, there isn't even a word in Russian for police harassment or police brutality. Yeah. No, other I than Tuesday. <laughs> now, so they built this system because as you go up, the more elite you get, the smaller number of things and people that you protect until you've moved your way all the way up to, you know, protecting the top guys or the top guy himself. At which point you have been so vetted and you are so well paid and you are so well taken care of because you get, you know, you get the, th the things in life you like money, sex, stealing, and beating on people. Right. It's the apex of the Russian food chain. So those are the guys that he has taken care of him. And the people he has working for them, they're way down at the end of the table. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's... Well, he's afraid. That's true. 
That's he's clearly paranoid. A thing. I want to get to that too. And um, somebody had a thread the other day, and I can't remember. I, I thought it was this guy uh, Camille Galiev, and but I, I now I can't find it when I when I went to look about. Yeah, I've seen some of the stuff. It's pretty good. Yeah, what what you were talking about about the hierarchy of Russian life, and that uh, uh, you know where soldiers fit, which is the very bottom of the food chain, and. In the mafia state, everybody has to be, you know, it's dumbed down to such a degree that anybody really talented is either given a different job or just killed to get out of the way. So that's, you know, there's a lot of just kind of not very bright uh, people doing th these jobs right now either. But let's get back to the to the matter at hand, which was the, the I, I want to talk a little bit more about the information stuff. So this was supposed to be over in 48 hours, right? It was supposed to oh, be, yeah. we go in there. We, we get the thing we go. This was supposed to be like the Salisbury hit, but writ large. And mm -hmm. it was not. And Putin badly, badly misread. It was supposed to be his Grenada. Yeah. Yeah. He badly misread the situation on the ground. He misread Zelensky. He misread the Ukrainian people. He misread his own army's readiness, everything. So, okay, you have all these guys that are protecting him. Why won't any of them tell him, you know, what the, what the fucking deal is? Because... because this is my guess, all right? I, I, and I'm just like taking what I've seen on the internet and just, you know, repeating it to you. So no credit if I'm right. <laughs> um, like a lot of dictators, he got in at first by being an extremely rational and information hungry actor. I need to know everything. I need to know the board so I know my next move. Mm -hmm. All right. After a while... You get lazy. Look, I mean, Mugabe was a brilliant field commander. I mean, he routed, you know, he routed the, you know, the British trained forces of Rhodesia. That ain't easy. And he did that because he was at the time, as they all are in the beginning, like Caesar. They were everywhere and they asked questions and they listened to answers, right? Their decisions were based on as full information as they could get, and they did not cow people into lying to them. Then after X number of years and old age and paranoia and fear of death and resentment and, you know, lack of other outlets, you start to go, you know, maybe I am God. Yeah. And maybe I don't need people who tell me I'm not, you know. I've got where I've got. Obviously, I'm smarter than everybody else. So why do I need to hear somebody tell me something I don't want to hear? I know better, right? History is full of leaders who bet against their advisors and occasionally won. Reagan bet, against, Reagan bet against the CIA on the question of Russia. The CIA told him that Russia was a monolith and, you know, you know could could do anything. They were like supermen. They just, you know, their military was this, you know, their, their, you know, their, their technology was that, blah, 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 blah. And Reagan didn't totally believe it. He called up Nixon and Nixon said, you know, Ron, uh, when I was negotiating the final portions of the SALT Treaty and they had me in the Kremlin and they put me in the nicest section of the Kremlin. And I know that everything was bugged and, you know, it, it, it was clearly the best place they could find. And the fucking toilet didn't work. <laughs> okay. I had to call, some, you know, I had to call somebody to call some Russian to plunge my toilet because they couldn't keep it working. And Ron was like, okay, well, maybe, 
it's a paper tiger. Okay. So every leader, even if you hate Reagan, especially if you hate Reagan, looks at him and goes, but he was right. He knew better than his experts. I know better than my experts. Sometime in the last three to five years, against all good information available to the contrary, I think Putin started to believe the story. Yeah. I think Putin went in there believing that they would welcome him with bread and salt and little girls with big bonnets in their hair singing Russian fairy tales. I think he really thinks that, or he no. did. I think he thought they can't possibly really like Zelensky. He's a Jew. He must be an American plant. All right. Um, look, when he started coming up, the noises Putin made in the first four or five years that he was running the place were amazing. I mean, this is a guy who showed up, you know, and hung out with the chief rabbi, you know, slapped on a, a yarmulke and lit candles for Hanukkah on TV. This is a guy who talked at least a good game about continued Ukrainian sovereignty. But at the time, what he meant was Ukrainian semi-neutrality, mm -hmm. right? Like Belarusian neutrality. He sounded rational and progressive. And yes, there were a lot of codes in there. And that, you know, the, the codes were authoritarian codes and they were nationalist codes, but they weren't, you know, they weren't nuts up. Yeah. You know, look, I, I came up through Moscow. I was trained to look at Ukrainians like, okay, they have sovereignty for now because they'll fuck it up. Because the Ukrainians that were running the place when I was in Moscow were really corrupt. I mean, Yushchenko wasn't, but he didn't last long because uh, nobody really wanted to live in a non-corrupt Ukraine at that point. Because they kind of thought our corruption is what keeps the Russians out. We're too messy even for them. So if you were like an on-the-ground Ukrainian, at least this is what we were taught, if you were an on-the-ground Ukrainian, you kind of liked the situation where they existed as a semi-autonomous region that just happened to have its own currency and flag, but they paid tribute up to Moscow, and Moscow used them when necessary to launder deals. So, you know, I walked out of Russia looking at Ukraine going, well, I hope they make it. Not, oh, what, what, a, you know, what a bunch of heroes they are. Um, you know, I don't have an ethnic dog in this fight. I'm not ethnically Russian. All right. My people came from Lithuania. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of us in Russia, but, you know, I don't have like this Slavic chauvinism thing going on. But the Ukraine that I knew, and I, I'd never been there. So, you know, but I have a lot of friends who worked there, who went there. It's beautiful. They're great people. I'm not knocking them at all. But the general feeling was, uh, who cares? Even, you know, if they can manage as a country, great. If they can't manage as a country, we'll take them back. Um, some of them are goofy. I've had a lot of Ukrainian clients and they're goofy. On the other hand, they're the kind of goofy that figures out how to get sugar into the ga gas tanks in convoys without anybody noticing, right? They are absolutely not to be fucked with. Uh, well, that, that is clear. I think, yeah. I, I think everyone has realized and, that now. Yeah. And, you know, but that part about them, 
I hadn't really picked up on. So, you know, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely positively astonished as to how they're behaving themselves. I think they're managing their propaganda beautifully. Mm, yes. I don't even give a shit if it's true. I don't. Yeah. We have to. Yeah. I mean, I, what I give a shit about is they manage it so much better. Well, look at Zelensky. I mean, look at it. Look at the perception of Zelensky. He's somebody who, even in Ukraine, was not, you know, terribly popular and might not have even won re-election. You know, tried, I think, his best to stop some of the corruption. Couldn't. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole thing got sort of strong-armed a little bit by, by Trump in that, in that exchange. It was known for that, if anything. And now in the space of, of a couple of weeks, he's, he's an international hero. And I mean, really, a, a guy who, whatever happens here going forward, is going to be remembered for a long, long time for his heroism. So just the, the, uh, the myth-making, if you will, in real time that we've all watched is, is amazing. Um, and 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 uh, inspirational, which is the point of it, you know. I think. Look, Europe ha does not really have a lot of um, I wouldn't call them revolutionary, but you know, independence heroes. They don't have a lot of George Washingtons. Yeah. I mean, the Finns have Mannerheim. The the Brits have Churchill, yeah. um, who's not so much of a a revolutionary figure, but uh, you know of a you know, a stubborn, we will not back down figure. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the French have de Gaulle, right? Um, you know, basically giants of the survival or continuation of their nation as a state. Yeah. Zelensky's pretty fucking close to getting that. If yeah. He, yeah. Whether or not he survives, whether or not Ukraine survives, all right, he will be, you know, they will stop saying bandera, and they will start saying Zelensky. Yeah, yeah. He's already, in, in the space of, what, three weeks? Um, astonishing, really. Just a, an astonishing series of events and played beautifully. Um, okay, so let's talk about, uh, a, a, away from Ukraine for a minute, I want to get back to Russia. Okay. Because um, the economic sanctions, okay? I, I, I think sanctions is such a word that has such a large spectrum. And we associate it with kind of a slap on the wrist. Well, we give them sanctions. That's what we did. When they invited Crimea, the first, you know, in, in, in 2014, there were some sanctions, really didn't do that much, irritating maybe, at, uh, you know, inconvenient, but it didn't certainly didn't stop anything or, or punish anything in any uh, meaningful way. This, I don't think people fully realize, including me, just how fucked this is. Like this is, a, this is as I understand it, this is basically economic warfare that, we're, that we, the West, is waging on Russia. So we It's have, not warfare. Well, it's it's uh, no. I'll think, I'll explain to you why it's not warfare. Okay, if you and I show up, yeah, into you know uh, a room, and I have a weapon and you have a weapon, and we go at it, yeah, that is warfare. All right, if you are walking around stumbling, and I walk in like it's you know the Colosseum, and I have a net in one hand and a trident in the other. And I put you on the ground and I poke holes in you until you stop breathing. That is not warfare. All right. That is murder. We have murdered their markets. Yeah. No. That, and I think because we have, okay, they're booted from the international banking system. They can't access. Sort of. They can't access dollars. They're basically cut off from that. They can't no, sell. They can, no, they can access dollars. It's just they can't use them. 
Okay. Here's what they can do. They can't right. sell the gold reserves even. They're trying to sell uh, the gold reserves. Nobody can sell gold reserves. Okay. Well, they, That's the beautiful thing. That is not something we imposed upon them. It's not done. You can sell small amounts of gold, but you and you do it through the London or Switzerland. And you don't really have to deliver on the gold because what happens is you're selling a claim on the gold. At some point, somebody else buys the claim. At some point, that claim comes back to you and you buy it back later on. All right. So it's not like somebody puts gold bars into the back of a choo-choo train and sends it across Europe. Sure. But because they can't settle if they were called upon to, and because we won't allow them to take hard currency, they're out there and they're trying to like drop the price 20% and they still can't move it because in order to do what they needed to need to do, I mean, at one point when they were really, really desperate, they sold off about 400 tons, right? They have a lot more than that. That is a huge amount of gold to move. Central banks do not move anywhere near that much. Now they're trying to move 2,000, right? The market won't let them, not just because, oh, the Russians are under sanctioned, but none of the other central banks are going to be like, look, we sit on gold too. If, we're, if we buy that much at that discount, do you know what that does to the value of our gold? Yeah. Do you know? I mean, that basically reduces the, that's a large amount of gold for a large discount. That technically reduces more or less by 20% the value of gold reserves around the world, unless nobody buys. Which is what's happened. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not even a sanction. It's just the rest of the world going, uh, I can't read this. It's in Cyrillic. You know, shred the fucker. Nobody's buying their gold. Yeah. And they have a lot of it and it's useless. Now they're kicked. Their stock market is is has been closed for two weeks or something like that. It's on its third week of being closed. Yeah. And in 2008 and in 1998, when I was there and they were in crisis, they would open it every morning. Okay. They would open it every morning and slam it shut when it went more than 15% down. Okay? okay. Sometimes it would last an hour and a half before it hit the mark. Sometimes it would last about 94 seconds. <laughs> All right. But every morning they opened it up, brave fuckers that they were, and let the market just go down and down and down slowly. But nobody saw it crash. Nobody heard it thump. Nobody watched it bounce. Nobody smelled it die. It has been, it has been flatter, all right, than a Florida ice rink for two weeks. And they have no way of reopening it because there's... Because the foreigners who own stock, if they sell the stock, they need to get paid for the stock. Which they can't do. Well, they can, but it will be converted into rubles. Yeah, the right? ruble isn't doing so well right Well, what will happen is in 98, when there was a whole bunch of instruments that the banks could not settle, they could not satisfy, hedges against the ruble, they all got sued. And they all got sued by Western banks. And the Western banks all lost because they all cowboyed the deals and barely well papered them. And the Russian courts took, you know, advantage of the fact that the deals were poorly papered and tore them up as gambling contracts. These are not gambling contracts. These are not hedges. These are spot sales of stock. There are, you, if you sell that stock 
and they cannot come up with the money to pay you, however little it is, okay, they, the bank, are criminally liable and civilly liable to you under Russian law. And the Russians know that the last thing that they're going to need if and when this is over and they're crawling out of the wreckage is for the institutional securities buyers of the world to be standing in line saying, A, where's my money? B, where's my lawyer? And C, if you don't settle this with me, you're never listing anything again anywhere. So it's bad, is what you're saying. It's bad. It's bad for two years. Money yeah. has a memory. Money has, you know, Korsakoff syndrome. It can't remember anything more than two years ago. Two, okay. three years at the most. Right? The truth is, by 2025, 2026, if there's anything approaching normalcy in Russian relations with half of the world and the oil price is high enough, money will go back. Yeah. But what will it find? No, this is, I, I, and this is what I'm getting at. I mean, I think depending on how long this lasts, because you have people who can't leave, you have, you have a currency in free fall. I mean, they're going to have to start printing, you know, 100,000 ruble notes and this sort of thing. Uh, that, that's what happens in countries in free fall like this. Like in, it's what, happened, know, to, it, it's in what happened to them in the first 18 months of Yeltsin. And yeah. it happened, but it happened with the blessing of the IMF and with, you know, and with Bill Clinton showing up in Moscow drunk, hugging Yeltsin the whole way as his currency lost, you know, 99.999% of its value, right? At the end of the Gorbachev period, a ruble on paper was worth about $1.10, right? That was a ridiculous exchange rate. It was not market, whatever. Yeah. By the end of the Gaidar experiment, by 92, 94, right, yeah, by like 94, 95, the first major crisis in, you know, the ruble was about 9,300 to the dollar. Okay. When I, it had stayed, or, or more, or more than 10,000. When I got there in 97, it was, I think, somewhere between 6,800 and 7,200 to the dollar. Yeah. Currency reform in Russia on the 1st of January, 1998, was just printing the same bills with three zeros fewer. They just lopped three zeros off and suddenly it was six rubles to the dollar and they walked around like they had absolutely invented graham crackers. They were the smartest people on earth. They did all of that stuff with Washington's blessing, with London's blessing, with the blessing of the international financial community that said, okay, whatever the fuck happens to your currency, we will continue to lend you stabilization money. Yeah. You will come out of this. You will not go into a Russian version of the Weimar Republic. Well, the you know, Weimar was, uh, you know, hyperinflation is, I think by definition, it doubles 50% every, I can't, I can't remember the thing. If it's every week or every day or something, it, it's an insane uh, situation where the money literally has no value, and people, you know, uh, people were buying. Well, money pianos. didn't have even when money had value in the Soviet system, it didn't have value. Yeah, money doesn't have value in Russia. Power has value in Russia. Mm. Well, okay, that's a good segue to the next question that I wanted to ask you. Because I want to talk about the oligarchs, because there's been a lot of attention paid to the oligarchs. Okay, um, right now we have we have video of yachts being seized. We have uh, 
Lavrov's stepdaughter. Uh, there's protests outside of her flat in very posh neighborhood of, in London. Yeah, he have, think, he's not going to think that's funny at all. In Bayeritz, you have Putin's daughter's, you know, very, very lovely uh, piece of property that's now been appropriated by French squatters that want to give it to the Ukrainian people. I think we're going to see more and more of this. Um, but so what does all this mean for the oligarchs? Like if you're one of these mega rich Russian people, are they really stuck there? Do, do the sanctions really affect them? Like what, what's going on with this? And is it, is it, is it just for show? Or is it really going to have be something that has teeth going forward? What do you think? So there are a couple of theories. Okay. I have no idea which one's true. Theory one is that all of these guys are nothing but cutaway for Putin. That over the last 20 years, Putin has made it very clear that, okay, you guys can play, you know, whoever you are, however much you pretend to own, okay? If it's $2 billion or $72 billion, you have about half a billion to a billion dollars that you can spend on yourself however you want. You want a yacht, you can have a yacht. You want a mistress, you can have a mistress. You want a couple of Swiss chalets, you can have Swiss chalets. You want to buy yourself the trappings of opulence. Be my guest, you can have those. But everything in the bank above a certain amount, I tell you where to spend it. I tell you what to spend it on. And when I want it back, it comes back. And the reason it comes back is that as long as you do what I tell you to do, you get to wake up without a case of sudden instant death disease. Yeah. That's one theory. Okay. Under that theory, seizing oligarch property is seizing Putin property. Okay. Right. It is a direct hit at your target. So that's theory one. Theory two is these guys are somewhat beholden to the man. They pay a tax. They definitely, you know, they ask his permission, but they are, or they think they are, independent actors, okay? Uh, you know, to use a, a phrase that I loathe, they have agency, okay? They get to make okay. their own decisions. And if we make their lives miserable, maybe their decision will be, fuck it, we'll all get together and we'll knock the guy down. The basis for that theory is they came close to doing that to Yeltsin, mm -hmm. all right? But Yeltsin was poor. Yeltsin was not beloved of the Siloviki. Yeltsin was drunk. Yeltsin was weak. And as far as I can tell, Yeltsin probably didn't get people killed as a... Yeltsin was a soft target. Putin's not a soft target. Yeah. The third theory is we don't know. I mean, this is like, the, you know, the American government. We don't know. We don't care. We are going to show these guys that we have all the information. Okay. We know where the bank's accounts are. We know where the cars are. We know where the boats are. We know where the yachts are. We know where the planes are. We know where the, we know where, you know, your bastard children go to school. I mean, it, it's like that horrifyingly frightening scene in Foundation where, you know, the emperor tells this girl, not only am I going to wipe you out, I'm going to wipe out anyone who could possibly have remembered you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to snap my hands and 1,146 people are going to cease to exist. Yep, Thanos. And when you're gone, there won't even be anyone to remember you. Okay. We are pulling that game because that really frightens Putin. I mean, he's known for like five years that we know where all the shit is. When the, Pan when the Panama Papers leaked... That, you know, that was a huge breach 
of what they considered an impenetrable firewall. Yeah. So when that happened, they knew we had it. And okay. he's done a lot of cleaning up of his security services because he figured that we must have had human intelligence. We might have, but what we really had was we found where the good hackers were. I'm guessing. Yeah. I was extending on my point, but you were about to say something else. Oh, no, I was going to ask about Putin's daughter because now this is something you and I have talked about before offline, but Putin has daughters and we never hear about them. And there's a reason why. And now the fact that that Putin's daughter is in the, the press at all, that we're even aware of her existence. And this isn't important. this isn't his this isn't a daughter from his marriage. OK, OK, this is this is and this is interesting because let's do the math here. It is 2022. OK, Putin became Putin president of Russia on the 1st of January, 2000. Yep. All right. So he's been doing this job for 22 years. How old is this girl? I don't know. 22? Which means he was, I mean, there are a lot of people with second families in Russia, all right? But you don't have them with impunity and you don't have children with them until you are in a position where they cannot be used against you. Okay. So if he was rolling around with this model or this, this gymnast back when he was only prime minister mm -hmm. to a man who went through prime ministers the way I go through socks, <laughs> right? Yelt, uh, your life as a prime minister with Yeltsin was about seven months on average. Okay. Okay. So being Yeltsin's prime minister is not, an, is not a, a position of impunity. Unless it is, unless the real power behind you has absolutely nothing to do with this old drunk. Yeah. You listen to Catherine Belton, she tells a really good story. Basically, you know, Putin was anointed around 1998, 1999, right? Yeah. But so, I mean, we can, we can look at maybe the girl's 18, which makes a lot more sense. But if, but if she were, if she had been created out of wedlock by a senior Russian official who is not the president and is not otherwise ensconced yeah. in untouchability, then something really interesting was going on there because, you know, 23 years ago or whatever, Putin was not a man who gave into any baser functions until he was thoroughly aware of his security. Yeah. He took no chances. Yeah. So what you're saying, in other words, is that the fact that this person exists and is the age that she is suggests that Putin was comfortable enough with his hold on power to be able to do that longer ago than maybe we would. Yeah. Okay. That's how I would do it. Uh, that, I mean, yeah. I, I would just pull that's out a calendar. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I'm glad I asked because I had not, that had not occurred to me. I just sort of, um, you know, math. I don't know. It's too late at night to do math. Man. I mean, Lavrov has been, um, I wouldn't say untouchable, but Lavrov has not been touchable probably for 25 years. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, you, you don't get to be foreign minister of Russia without having some of the best intelligence and, you know, in, in both senses of the word. Yeah. yeah. Known to man. Um, and, Anyone who knows him 
knows that if you poke him, he will poke back. And so when, when a whole bunch of people found out where his daughter lived and rocked up, and remember, I mean, look, the UK, the French, they know where all these people are. They yeah, know sure. who they are. They have intelligence systems. They do background work. It's not like, oh, my God, I didn't know she was living here. Right. Yeah, no, they know. But they keep their mouths shut about it because why cause a problem? You know, you know, it wasn't too long ago that the Brits and the French were also living, you know, by the old world rules that, you know, good God, how many children do you think Mitterrand really had? Or Chirac? Or any of these guys? Yeah. Right? So... They're not going to make a fuss about. It. Here's where we know. Here's when we will know that this got really real when it starts happening here. Okay. Now they don't send their children here for obvious reasons. Yeah. But I'm sure they have some mistresses in Miami. I'm sure they have some U.S.-born bastards in Miami with somebody else's name on the on the birth certificate. Sure. As father, most likely. If it's, I mean, and we know where they are. If they're here, we know who they are. Okay. And the question becomes, when do we nudge, nudge, wink, wink, start sending people to, you know, shake Ukrainian flags outside their, um, you know. Domicile. Outside yeah. their domicile on Sunny Isles Beach. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. So that's, that's another question I was going to ask you towards the end. Because we're, we're, we're hitting at the time mark. So, um you know, I was going to ask about what we should look for as a sign of, of things changing one way or the other, because, uh, you know, I, 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 I've been paying very close attention to what's happening. And I see on Twitter people weighing in about this, that or the other. And I feel very not confident weighing in on any, you know, I'm not going to advocate for Biden to do this, that or the other, because first of all, I think he's played this really well so far. He obviously knows what he's doing and has a lot more intelligence than I do in terms of, you know, and there's so much to manage and so many egos to manage in terms of keeping all of the alliances in place, worrying about what she's going to do in China and, um, you know, and Putin himself and trying to, you know, defeat him while also not escalate insofar as we can. So, you know, I think there's people pushing for certain things that they want um, that Biden might know. If I do this, if I do the no-fly zone, you know, the no-fly zone is is basically I'm just gonna we're just gonna start shooting airplanes out of the sky. Maybe that's gonna escalate, and that's something we can't do yet. Even though it's something we would like to do, we can't. So I don't know, you know, I don't know enough to know. And uh, I'm watching with interest, and I trust that we have the right leaders in place. But I, I'm I'm I am looking at the tea leaves, and I'm wondering what the tea leaves are. Like, what would be a sign? Other than, hey, we haven't heard from Putin in a while. We keep seeing the same clip of him and his hand is shaking and he's wearing the same tie he wore for the last five videos. Is he still alive? What's going on? You know, that kind of stuff. But anything else that you might think is a sign of, of something, just something to look for that, that I might not, might not occur to, you know, me or somebody else? When Russian television starts playing classical music. Why? Because that's what they did when the general secretaries would. They went straight to classical music for like three hours as they figured out what they would announce. So literally, it was just like blank screen and classical music, or it was only yeah, Prokofiev okay. usually. Okay, all right. Well, sometimes you know, sometimes uh, yeah, Prokofiev because he was a Soviet era composer. Right, right. Um, and he did these dirges, you know, so everybody knew. Huh. Um, you know, so yeah. 
That will be the, you know, Putin is dead hint. Okay. Um, but, you know, how? what are the other options? He negotiates something with the Russians, all right? All right with the Ukrainians. Yeah, okay. And and then, then they'll play this the way everybody always plays uh, a negotiated settlement. We got everything. The other guy, you know, caved. Yeah, but and that's another thing. The the Galiev guy that that threaded about this on Twitter, which is that this has happened before in Russian history, and in, in, you know, the Crimean War, and the uh, the war with Japan, the Russo Japanese War, where they they try to claim these military victories, and everyone sort of knows it's bullshit, and then the regime is over very soon after that. Whoever you know tried to do it. So, um, you know, yes and no. I mean. Uh, Nicholas II survived 13 years after the end of the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah. Um, and it was primarily Teddy Roosevelt who did that, okay, because he negotiated the end of the war Okay. in New Hampshire, got the Mondale Whale Prize for it, all right? The Russians got, you know, a disputed claim to four islands in, you know, north of Japan. The Japan, you know, the Japanese got everything else. Yeah. Um, technically, the Russians and the Japanese have never signed a peace treaty at the end of the Second World War. Technically, they're still at war. Okay. Um, but he's right, Galiev, right? Yeah. In Putin's mind, if he doesn't get any territory for this, he will, he'll get murdered. Yeah. And I think and that's... Be, yeah, for losing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the end game of the sanctions anyway. I was going to say this before. I think that, you know, we're saying we're 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 putting these sanctions on you. Um, they're crippling, and it's going to take a while. Once we once we turn them on, it's going to be very difficult to turn them off suddenly. It's going to the, it's it's going to come on fast, and it's going to be a long time. And I think that the the uh, the sanctions will lift when Putin is out, whether he resigns or uh, yeah. But I mean. Look, I, I, I've done difficult negotiations, right? Yeah. His people are not going to bring home a deal for him to sign off on that leaves sanctions in place unless he leaves, right? He's oh, no, not that's, gonna... that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying forget about a deal. I mean, it would be great if there was a deal, but if there is no deal and the war keeps going, I think that's the thing that's going to change it. And this little inner circle around him, Patrushev and the other guys – you know, somebody has to be like, okay, the the only way we can get out of this as a country is for this guy to go, one of us to take over, and then, you know, have that be sort of a reset button. We can pretend we're nice for a year and a half and then get right back to it. I mean, that's probably what's going to happen, would be my guess. Look, all of these, well, Putin was a student of German history. Yep. I don't know about the others, but any student of German history knows um, it wasn't until the allies were you know within 10 kilometers of the bunker on all sides that you know guys like himmler decided Man, what if we talk to the british you know <laughs> here's an idea <laughs> let's let, let's try to talk our way out of this right? if they had done that if people within hitler's circle two or three of them because one doesn't do it hess tried it in 1942 and lived in you know, and lived in prison for the next 47 years, right? Because nobody took him seriously. If two or three people had gone to the Allies and said, 
will off Hitler, bring you his body, um, stop bombing us, we'll sue for peace, but whatever you do, get those fucking Russians out of here. They might have made that deal. I think they probably would not have, but they had a good chance. But there was a chance, all right? But the funny thing is, is it probably would have ended up just the way it ended up. The country divided and, you know, in the next 30 or 40 years of where they were. Just a couple hundred thousand fewer corpses. Yeah. And so anyone who looks at that history and says, oh, you know what we can do? We can decapitate our chain of command and present ourselves to the West and see if we get a better deal. Knows a couple things. One, they're next. Two or three years from now, as soon as somebody figures out that, you know, hauling a dead Russian leader into conference circle with Germans, French, British, and American gets you, you know, cookies and a job, they're all going to do it to each other, right? Yes, they have national pride, but nobody got where they are in that country by really caring about the nation, history, culture, or people of the Russian Federation. That is not a driver for them. Yeah. I mean, it is a criminalized enterprise. You know, you're always, you know, you're always making jokes about the mob. All right. I don't make jokes about the mob because it's not, you know, because they're not the other. You know, back when I started working in Russia, you had the government, you had the pigs and you had the mob. All right. And they were all wrestling with each other as to who was actually going to control the the country and its economy. The pigs won. They first took over the government like, you know, the thing, and then they took over the mob. And now the government sort of exists, the mob sort of exists, but they're basically two manifestations of the power structure. They're not independent actors, not, not above a certain level. Yeah. And so everything has, you know, everything's been mobbed up. Everything's been criminalized. Everything has been on the basis of understanding and corruption. And that, you know, that's my final point. That's why they're, you know, that's why Ukraine is going to end badly for everybody. Yeah. They don't have their equipment because the money was stolen. They don't have their contract professional soldiery because the money was stolen. They don't have their reliable fifth column inside spies and turncoats throughout Ukraine, like Hodgkin's lymphoma, because the money ran out. And the money ran out for one very simple reason. They all stole it. That's the thing that, you know, kind of gets me. If and when they pay reparations to Ukraine, spoiler alert, they will not. They won't let us demand it. And if we demand it, they won't pay it. But if we are taking this money and saying, oh, this is for Ukraine, where did it come from? Where did all that money come from? It came from the tax coffers of the Russian Federation, yep. meaning it came from the taxpayers, meaning it came from those poor assholes that they, you know, find on the street with string bags looking for, you know, you know, looking for a chicken that doesn't have cancer spots on it. Those are the victims. Yes. So are the Ukrainians. But the Russian, you know, all, everything Navalny has blown a whistle on, everything Magnitsky died for. This was not Ukrainian money that these guys were stealing. It was Russian money. Yeah. You know, for the last 25 years. They've been stealing everything in their own country, and they've been using the oil revenues or, you know, 
IMF money or whatever they can borrow or foreign direct investment to subsidize that. I have no idea when that system's going to stop, all right? Because let's put it this way. If we don't hold our crooks to account, and we do not, and we will not, if we don't hold our government crooks to account, they sure as fuck aren't going. Yeah. Yeah, you got that right. I mean, we're the, as sick as it is, we're the only model they really follow. They don't quite get what it is we are and what we do, so they just see the ugly stuff. But we're the ones they pretend to be because, to be blunt, we're the biggest white guys in the room, and that's what they want to be. I mean, the Brits, they don't respect them. Who does? Not even the Brits. The Chinese, not European, right? The Brazilians, not European, not really that important either. The French, um, <laughs> I'm waiting to hear what you're going to say here. <laughs> Will I have French, to edit it out? Yeah. No, uh, no, actually, I mean, the, the French stopped telling people what to do in, in the 18, 19th eight, century. I was going to say in 1815. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they're not really, I mean, and believe, actually, the Russians tried several times to follow French governance models. But again, they weren't designed for maximal stealing. <laughs> right. Right. They consider us the apex of robber capitalism, right? They've been taught since childhood that the way America worked was an oligarchic, plutocratic, you know, wealth driving lawmaking. Mm -hmm. and bending the scales of justice country where, you know, black people get killed on the street and um, you go hungry and you can't go to a doctor and school debt puts you in, you know, puts you into bankruptcy. Uh, ridiculous, right? Yeah. I mean, where the fuck did they get that idea about us? But they raised, I mean, in the 80s, they're posters. In the 70s, they're, they're propaganda. All right. They took slavery, lynching, you know, theocratic rulemaking, economic disparity, you know, all of the things that were evident then and evident now as products of the American system. And they said, that's it. That's what you get when you are a highly successful, powerful country. So let's do that. That's interesting because, you know, what you're saying is that, is that, Putin's Russians, Putin's Russia got its idea of itself from modeling the United States in the same modeling, way. Modeling a perverted version of us. In the same way that Hitler's Germany did, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought, I think, to end on because we're running out of time. And uh, look, I really appreciate the chance to rattle on. <laughs> this has been great. We, we, we hit a lot of points, I think, that, that I haven't seen elsewhere. And, and uh, I think it's Monday, as we're recording this Monday night. I think by Friday, this will still be topical, I, I would think, you know, some of the things we touched on. So uh, Moscow never sleeps. We can follow you on Twitter on, what is it, M-O, what's, it, what's the Twitter handle? Is it M-O-W? M-O-S never sleeps. M-O-S never sleeps. Somebody um, already got Moscow never sleeps because there's like a movie with that name. Uh, certainly, right now, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, uh, sleepful, restful nights in in the real Moscow. So, uh, no, sir. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me on short notice. I appreciate the time as always. Great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, and have a great night. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs. 
Sigmundella, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. W.